Well, good morning. <laughs> good morning. It is so good seeing all of you guys. Welcome to Forest Park. As you make your way back to your seat, go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Genesis. Uh, we're going to wrap up chapter 3. Um, but before we get into Genesis, um, we're going to pray over a, a covenant member. And so here at Forest Park, um, our mission is to make disciples who love God deeply, uh, who loves one another uh, authentically, and who loves our neighbors sacrificially. And so part of the discipleship process is bringing them in, and then that's the easy part, but the hard part is, is also sending them out. And so as we have times of where we introduce covenant members who are committed to, to, to making and being disciples in this place, now there's also times where we are praying over covenant members and we send them out and say, go now and make disciples. And so Kyle, if you want to come forward, um, Kyle kind of partially grew up in the church. You guys started coming in 2014, 13, 14, 15. Uh, so about nine years. Um, so half of his childhood has been here. I won't make you come up. And, um, and so, yeah, kind of grew up and started with Ignite and then Exemplify, faithfully served on our music team, um, playing the, the drums, yes, and Cajon. And then we learned he could play guitar, and then we learned he could sing. <laughs> and then the banjo, I'm just kidding. Um, and, and so he has been such a faithful member here, and I am so proud of him and just seeing the good work that the Lord has begun, how you were a little boy and now you are a man, and your parents must be so proud of you. And this is such a happy and yet sad day because we're happy to see the Lord sending you and using you, and we're sad to say goodbye knowing this is not forever. You will still always be part of this family. And so mom, dad, family, friends, if you guys want to come up, let's pray over Kyle as we send him out and as we commission him for ministry in Virginia Beach. Yeah. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for today, Lord. Today is a happy day. It's a sad day filled with emotions. Lord, we thank you uh, for the work that you had begun in Kyle, the fact that you've called him to yourself, that you've opened up his eyes, that you've revealed truth to him. Lord, thank you for the salvation that you've accomplished in him. Thank you for the work that you've done, how he's grown up in his salvation, he, how he's learned what it means to be part of the church through the highs and the lows, and how he's faithfully served in the church. Lord, and thank you for this time that you have called him to go somewhere else to do your work. And Lord, I do pray, can you go before him? Can you continue to work in him? Can you continue to use him, Lord, as we now commission him? to go out and make disciples. Be with him, bless him, keep him, and may your face shine on him. We thank you for him. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
we're continuing uh, through the book of Genesis. So let's go to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we're going to wrap up chapter 3. Um, if you've missed last week, I want to encourage you. Um, I'm going to do a brief recap, but you probably have to listen to it uh, on, on our podcast or on, on YouTube, whichever you prefer. Um, we're going to try to wrap up the rest of chapter 3. But let me, let me ask the Lord. We really need the Lord to help us in this text. We need the Lord to really help me to proclaim this text more and for the Lord to help you understand it and to convict you in this. So let's pray. Lord, can you uh, meet with us as we read your word? Can you teach us wonderful things about you? Can you convict us of our sins? Lord, can you help us just to see just the tragedy and the severity of the consequences of sin that just leads into horrendous destruction? And yet, in all of these consequences, these, this text is filled with hope, with you making a promise and you being merciful and gracious and you that takes the initiative in all these things. Um, help me to faithfully proclaim it in humility and in love. And Lord, help your people to hear it and to receive it. Um, may it convict them, may it pierce them, and may it encourage their hearts as they fix their eyes on you, Lord Jesus, for you are the answer to everything. And those who do not know you, those who are far from you, those who are struggling with human suffering and maybe even struggling with the idea of the God of the Old Testament, Lord, can you um, make yourself known? Can you expose their sin for what it is? Convict them and may they not harden their hearts as they hear you calling them. May they turn to you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, as we, we looked at chapter 3, we kind of said, before we look at chapter 3, we kind of have to look at chapter 2 that kind of sets the stage. And so last week, as we briefly looked at chapter 2 and chapter 3, we said that here was the condition before sin entered into the world. Man lived uh, with his wife in harmony in this beautiful garden that God had planted. They were fulfilling God's commission. They were enjoying God's provision and his presence. They were obeying God's commands. And then we come to chapter Chapter 3, and we see that everything changes because of the deception of sin. And so we learn that, that sin begins with a lie about God. And it takes deeper root in our hearts when we start to believe that lie. And that sin really focuses, and the deception of sin focuses more on what you can gain and neglects on what you will lose. And that sin is more than just a, a disobedience. It's more than just making a bad moral decision or falling short of a standard of God. Although sin is all of that, it is a willful rebellion of us usurping God. In other words, we're willfully doing, rebelling against God, saying, you are not God, I am. You are not God, this is, I know better. Because what was the ultimate temptation for Eve? To be like God, to declare her own good and her own evil. You can listen to the whole sermon on, 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 online. But today, as we look at the rest of chapter 3, we now come to the consequences of sin that leads to destruction. And really what we're going to discover is that sin impacts every area and every relationship of, 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 of humans. Uh, we're going to see how it impacts our relationship with God, how it impacts our relationship with one another, how it impacts our relationship with creation, with the environment. And again, before sin entered into the world, all these three relationships were intact. The, the man and the woman enjoyed the presence of God. They were without shame. The man and the woman 
even enjoyed the garden and the provision that God has given them as they were working the ground, as the ground were in a sense their servant and how the man and the woman enjoyed one another and lived in harmony with one another as they recognized their distinct identities and their distinct roles as they enjoyed this nourishing harmony. And yet the second that sin entered into the world, all of those relationships that were intact now were fractured and would cause contention for the man and for the woman. So are you guys ready? Uh, let's get into our text, verse 14, verse 14. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. It says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock. And more than any wild animal, you will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So, so let's just stop here. If you look at the previous verses, you will notice that God questioned the man. What have you done? And what did the man do? He blames God and the woman. And then God questions the woman, what have you done? But notice, when it comes to the serpent, he does not question the serpent. Why? Because the serpent has nothing to learn from God. And as the Lord pronounces judgment over the serpent, there's a clear tie between the serpent's actions and the punishment that follows. That's why verse 14 says, the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this. There's this correspondence between the nature of the judgment and the crime that was committed. And the serpent's judgment, uh, his punishment was three aspects. The first one was a consignment to crawling on its belly. The second one was the eating of the dust all the days of your life. And the third aspect of that punishment is this ultimate destruction by the offspring or the seed of the woman. Now, what we need to understand is that God's condemnation is not directed to the reptile per se, but rather the adversary that it represents. And if we look at these three aspects of the punishment, the first two of crawling on your belly and eating dust all the days of your life, really what he's telling the adversary, really what he's telling Satan is your entire life will be filled with humiliation. Like think about this, uh, and we know that, that Satan who have rebelled against God, who wants to defy God and take the place of God and wants all the glory for himself, God says, because of that, the life that you're going to live is not a life of glory, but a life of humiliation. And not only will you live a life of humiliation, but you will live a life that will be in constant hostility against the woman and her offspring. And this idea of hostility, or in some of your translations, it says enmity. Uh, that word, and the, the connotation of that word is that of war. So in other words, what God is saying, you will be at constant war against the woman and her offspring. And yet, as you're in constant war and wanting to destroy the woman and the offspring, that's going to be your very undoing. Because there's going to be a time where there's going to be an offspring that's going to come from the woman. 
And as you're raging war against the woman and the offspring, you're going to strike the heel of this offspring, which signals that he will be injured, but it will only be temporary. And yet in return, he will crush your head, which signals that he will have victory over you and that crushing the head will be a fatal blow that will be eternal. So as we look at verse 15, verse 15 really implies hope for the human family. Because we find out for this human family, there's this enemy that they have, this enemy that will be at constant war against them. And yet we see that this enemy is not going to finally prevail over the woman and her offspring, but there is going to come one offspring. In some of the translations, one seed. So we need to take a time out here a little bit because if you think about it, the, the word offspring or the word seed occurs 59 times in the book of Genesis. And if you study the Bible, really, like if you study a book, if there's one word constantly repeated throughout the book, it kind of shows you what's the book all about. It's about this offspring. And so the entire book of Genesis, the entire book of the Old Testament is about this offspring, about the seed that's going to come from the woman and that's going to wage war against the enemy and rise victorious over the enemy. And so as we study the book, as we read the book of Genesis, and let's say pretend we don't know the end of the story, the constant question that we're going to ask ourselves is, who is this offspring? When will this offspring come and finally destroy the enemy? And will God remain faithful in keeping his promise and providing this offspring? And then when we read about the family of the offspring, we read about the dysfunctionality of this family and how crazy this family is. It's worse like the family of days of our lives. Not that I watched the show, but it's just this imagery of dysfunction. You're like, there is no way that this offspring can come and defeat the enemy because look at this family. And yet, this dysfunctional family does not frustrate God and His promise that He makes in delivering an offspring that will come from the woman. And that is the question we ask. And this is the hope for the human family, this offspring that's going to come. But verse 15 not only provides hope for the human family, but verse 15 also vindicates the woman. Because who was the one that was deceived by the serpent? The woman was deceived by the serpent, and now the Lord tells the serpent and the enemy of man, saying, I am going to use the woman, not the man, but the woman, the offspring from the woman that will come and defeat you. Now, now think about this. Let, let's just stop here and think about the craziness of this. God's plan for saving humanity and defeating their enemy is through having a baby. Am I the only one that just thinks that's kind of crazy? And when God makes, enters into covenants and when God makes promises to the entire families of Genesis, you know what it all revolves around? Having babies. Having children. What is, as, what, what is more ordinary in life than having a baby? And it shows us that God works through the ordinary means of life to accomplish His purpose and to deliver His people through a woman having a baby. 
Now, now Christians, we all know where, where I'm going through in verse 15 because Christians historically refer to verse 15 as the proto-evangelium since what it's been taken, what it means is it is a prototype of the Christian gospel. And you're like, well, so Christians made that up? No, the Bible doesn't use that phrase, but the Bible picks up this idea as it shows us in verse 15 that this promise that God makes of an offspring the Bible picks up and says, oh yeah, that's Jesus. Paul picks this up, this idea of this offspring born of a woman, born under the law. In Galatians 4, 4, and refers to it as, as this offspring as Jesus. Paul then also identifies Jesus as the seed or the offspring, the, the blessing of Abraham in Galatians 3, verse 26. Revelation 12 verses 9, where Satan is marked as the red dragon, who is also identified as the ancient serpent. He opposes God's people. In other words, here's this imagery of this red dragon waiting for this woman to give birth to a child. And what does he want to do? He wants to devour this child. He does not want this child to be Born, He's opposing this woman. He's opposing this offspring. And the reason why is because he knows an offspring is going to come and going to ultimately destroy him. So let me destroy this offspring before he comes. And what does God do? God intervenes. And the offspring is born. And we know at the end of the story at the cross, certainly this enemy struck Jesus' heel that caused his death, but his death was only temporary. And when he was raised from the dead, he crushed the head of the serpent in dealing the death blow of Satan once and for all. Like, like what mercy... God shows the human family and, and, and pronouncing his judgment on his enemy and on them, he makes a promise of deliverance, delivering them from their enemy. The promise of an offspring. Um, I, I'm going to use the phrase Kevin DeYoung and his biggest story is the Christian, uh, Christian uh, kids Bible called the biggest story. He refers to the seed and the offspring as the, the snake crusher. Because that's surely what he is. He is the snake crusher. And the whole rest of Genesis and the rest of the pages of Scripture, we're going to get to Jesus' birth and follow him to the cross. And he will finally crush the serpent's head now the lord let's let's move on the lord turns to the woman in verse 16 he said to the woman i will intensify your labor pains you will bear children with painful effort your desire will be for your husband yet he will rule over you now notice there's no curse related to the woman's suffering. And what I mean by that is when he spoke to Satan, notice what he told Satan in verse 14. Verse 14, he says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed. He does not take that formula and apply it to the woman. He does not say, Because you were deceived by the serpent, you are cursed with suffering. He, he, he does not say it. He says that there's no cause to her suffering, and yet we know there's still consequences to her sin. And what's the consequences to her sin? Suffering and painful labor. 
And these consequences is these actions to her sin really impacts her two primary roles, that of childbearing and that of her relationship with her husband. And both those roles of childbearing and that of a relationship to her husband, both of them were ordained by God. But the consequences of her sin now leads to painful labor. So in other words, what we have to understand is childbearing came before the fall. And childbearing, in a sense, was a blessing. It was part of the mandate of be fruitful, be multiplied. It was a gift from Lord that signaled a blessing from God when man and woman became fruitful, multiply, and women bore children. But now, what was once a gift, what was once a signal of hope, is now also a reminder of her pain and of her suffering. And think about childbirth. It's hopeful and it's miraculous because through childbirth an offspring is going to come. And yet in the hopefulness and in the miracle and all the beauty of it, it's also women. It is it's painful. Why? Because in a sense it is a reminder of the consequences of sin. And not only will the consequences of her sin impact her and childbearing, but it will also impact her and her relationship with her husband. Her relationship will be broken. What God is saying is this, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. In other words, the desire for the woman will be to attempt to control her husband, to rule over him, but she will fail. Why? Because God has ordained the man to exercise his leadership over her. Again, this, 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 this idea of ruling over her does not necessarily mean harsh dominance. Because again, what happened before the fall? Before the fall, there was this marriage relationship with the different roles. The man was assigned to do what? To exercise headship, to rule over his wife. And the wife was given the role of what? That of a helper, that of, uh, of, a, of a servant sub submitting to the headship of her husband. But what does sin do? It takes the God-given roles that God has ordained and given and it distorts it. And now we know it as the battle of the sexes. And as much as the woman is trying to dominate the man, she will fail. Why? Because God has ordained man to rule over the woman. And so here's the very first consequence of sin. Here's the very first relationship that now is broken if you're taking notes is this. The consequences of sin is a broken relationship between the man and the woman. It is a broken relationship between the man and the woman. It now will be a relationship that is filled with tensions. It will be a relationship that is filled with selfish desires to rule and to dominate one another. It will be a relationship that is met, that is, uh, that is met with unmet expectations and disappointment. And it seems like just like childbearing is a signal of hope and suffering, so marriage is a signal of hope and suffering because it's through marriage which really is a gift from God where a husband and wife comes together and are united and become one where they produce children the offspring and yet it is in marriage that the Lord also reveals the consequences of sin because it'll be a marriage filled with what tension fighting bickering strife 
ruling over each other, dominating over each other. So it's through marriage and offspring will come, but it's also through marriage where you will be filled with a life full of tension. And this is why, like even for us today, through childbearing, through women, you experience that pain and you see that God is faithful in keeping his promise, but that pain is also a reminder of sin. And that's the same with marriage. Marriage is clearly a gift of God and it's a, it's a symbol of hope for us, but it's also a symbol of recognizing our sinfulness. Like, if you really want to know how sinful you are, do yourself a favor and get married. Like, let's just be honest, because marriage, marriage is going to make you angrier than you thought you could ever be. It will make you do things you thought you would never do. And you will end up blame, blaming your spouse for everything. Right? You would say, I've never felt this. I've never been so angry because of you. It is all your fault. And this is why for Christians, like this is what we need to understand. The problem in your marriage is not you having communication issues. Sure, you have communication issues, but the problem goes way deeper than that. It's because you are sinful and God is reminding you, this is why you need a Savior. You're not going to fix your problems with communicating better because you're going to use your communication skills to backbite one another and usurp one and one another and trap one another. Uh, am I speaking some truth here? And it says this is a consequence of sin. Your relationship now with your spouse is broken. So when you walk out of here and you guys fight, you know what you can say? Consequence of sin. We live in a fallen world. Maybe just start there. At the end of the sermon, you're going to learn this is why we need Jesus. Uh, let, let, let's move on. As he now um, speaks the final word to, to man. And, and notice this before we read man. It seems like his judgment was harsh on the serpent. Not as harsh on the woman, but now it's harsh on the man. Look at what he says. And he said to the man, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from the ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. Notice he told Saint, because you did this, he does not tell that to the woman, and now he tells the man, what? Because you have done this, because you listened to your wife, because you ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. In other words, God rightfully charges him against the wrong that he has done, and there's no blaming. His back is against the wall, and God does not curse Adam, but what does he curse? He curses the ground. So now it shows us the, the, the second relationship that is broken. The consequences of sin, if you're taking notes, a broken relationship between humanity and creation. There's this broken relationship between humanity and creation. Because of Adam's sin, the ground is now cursed. 
And he is going to spend his entire life working the ground, and his work is going to be difficult. And here's the irony here. Because what happened before the fall? God planted the garden and placed him in the garden and told him to do what? Work it. Cultivate it. And in a sense, the ground was his servant. He would work it and the ground would respond. But now the ground is no longer his servant, but the ground is his enemy. He will work it and it will be frustrating because the ground is cursed. Instead of producing all fruit, because it is cursed, it will produce thorns and thistles. And what a contrast to God's beautiful garden. And man's sin has spoiled his environment. And, and the environment, creation, suffers along with him since both are of the dust. And as man is working the ground, he will work without any relief until when? Until death. Death is what God warned them against. And death is what he is now personally going to experience. When we look at, and I kind of talked a little bit about it, but I just want to revisit it. When we look at the consequences of sin for both the man and the woman, it seems like all the good gifts that God has given us, childbearing, marriage, and work. Like all these three gifts were meant to be enjoyed and were blessings from the Lord. And yet now what it does seem to appear is that all these good gifts because of sin now becomes burdens and struggles. And yet the Lord does not abandon these good gifts but rather uses these good gifts that are now burdens and struggles, and he uses these gifts as signals of hope. Childbearing, marriage, and work. An offspring is going to come. A snake crusher is going to come. And so after a long, lengthy pronouncement of judgment, there are two events that kind of signals this continuing hope for the human couple. Look at these two events in verse 20. It says this, The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skin for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. So here's two events that gives us hope. The first event is this. Adam names his wife Eve. And Adam explains why he names her Eve. Because she will be what? The mother of all the living. In other words, all human life will find, her source, will find its source in her body. And by naming his wife, two things. That's hopeful. Adam believed God's promise. That God is going to provide a deliverer. And it is through Eve and her offspring that will defeat the enemy. So he takes that promise and he believes it by faith and he names her Eve. But then the second thing he does by naming her Eve, he's exercising. Remember in, the, in chapter 1, chapter 2, uh, when you name something, what does that mean? You exercise your authority over it. So by Adam naming Eve, he's exercising his authority over her. He is fulfilling his headship role. But then he names her Eve. 
okay? Which symbolizes not only is he exercising his role over her, but her name acknowledges companionship. It acknowledges his dependence on her because it's through her that an offspring will come and deliver them. Hopeful. But the second event is also hopeful. That is the Lord clothing them. The Lord acts on behalf of this vulnerable couple. Because let's just, let, let's just be honest. Like, like leaves don't cut clothing. It's just not going to last. And so what does God do? He takes this vulnerable couple and he provides adequate protection to cover up their embarrassment and to help them to preserve them in this new hostile environment that they're going to be banished to. And this clothing also reminded that they have sinned against God. No longer can they walk naked before the Lord with no shame and guilt. Why? Because they have sinned, which means now their shame needs to be covered up by animal skin. And think about this. If he covered them with animal skin, what had to happen? An animal had to be sacrificed. An animal had to die. And you know what that's going to point to? God's temporary provision. When he gives his people the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, and the law. That the blood of an animal is going to temporarily cover the sin. But really what it's ultimately going to point to is this offspring that's going to come is not only going to be a snake crusher. But he will also be the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world and cover his people and give them new clothes. Do you see all this hope in the midst of God pronouncing judgment? He does not wipe them out. He does not destroy them. And yet he rightfully pronounces judgment of them and say, because you have sinned, here are the consequences. Your relationship will be broken with one another. Your relationship with creation will be broken. And yet he gives them words of hope. And now we're going to see the final relationship that's broken in verse 22. It says this, the Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming swirl, whirling swords east of the garden of Eden to guard the way of the tree of life. So the third broken relationship, if you're taking notes, is a broken relationship between humanity and God. This new condition of man is now knowing good and evil. It's the reason why God kicks them out. And man achieved this knowledge unlawfully. And now man must accept the penalty. And though Eve is the mother of all living, man has lost the opportunity to possess eternal life. And this eviction is not just an, an, an eviction out of the garden, but it's an eviction out of the presence of God. And you know what now they're going to personally experience? what it means to live outside the presence of God. 
And what we're going to see is in the next chapter, you know what happens outside of the presence of God? Destruction and death. And this is something now they will have to personally experience. And this banishment is decisive and definitive. There's no way back in. Notice even the strong wording. He drove the man out. He placed his angels, his cherubim in there to guard the garden. In other words, there's no way back in. Even if they try to sneak in, all efforts, all energy, there's no way back. Now they are exiles, wanderers living in a hostile environment, and their banishment is permanent. And so let's stop here. Let's talk about application. What do we learn about the consequences of sin against God? We learn about the consequences of sin against God is that the consequences are severe. Why is it severe? Because the sin is ultimately against God. And because the sin is ultimately against God, here's the consequences. Life now will be filled with an enemy that is actively at war against you, that wants to destroy you and deceive you, and wants to see your destruction and death. You will live a life that is filled with pain, tension, struggle, wearisome toils that will only end in death. And you will live a life of exile, separated from God, and there's no way back in. And, and this is the question of humanity. This is the question of the Bible. Who is going to come and defeat our enemy? Who is going to come and rescue us and deliver us from a life of pain, tension, struggle, and wearisome toil that ends in death? Who will bring us back into the presence of God? Who will deliver us from destruction and death? And this is what the entire story is all about. Answering this question. And if you think about this, like, this is the question that not only Christians are asking, this is the question that the world is asking. Like, what has gone wrong with the world? Why is our world filled with so much pain and so much suffering and so much tension and so much struggle and so much wearisome toil that only ends in death? This is why you have philosophers come and say, life is just meaningless, it's filled with suffering. You live and you die and you have nothing to show for. So your two options is you either try to make the best of it and just treat yourself and do whatever you want to that makes you feel happy, only temporary until you face death. Or you just roll over and die immediately because there's no relief in it. Like this is the life that has occurred because of the consequences of sin. And this is why it kind of aggravates me where we as Christians kind of like not want to talk about suffering. Always want to be encouraging and not look at the realities of evil and think that everything is honky-dory and great. And the problem is when you take away from those things, you're taking away from the work of the snake crusher. Like, let me take you to the brothels and see the horrendous crime that's committed. Let me take you to the borders and see the sex traffic and the, the drug cartel that's going in. Let me take you to the back rooms of some of your families and the dysfunction that is going on behind closed doors. I don't think there's a single person that can say life is great. No, life is filled 
with pain and wearisome toil and struggles and tension. And just when you think you can manage all of this, what happens to your life? It falls apart. And there is no way for us to fix it. Like, we really should not read the Bible to our children because it is a mature book. Like, it is filled with death and destruction. And as much as we want to try to kind of put a moral spin to our kids to it, let's just be honest. Every person in the Bible falls woefully short of redeeming themselves from a life of pain, struggles, wearisome toil, redeeming their life against their enemy, redeeming their life and bringing their back into the presence of God. The only reason why God temporarily allows them in is because He initiates it. And this is why when we see the reality, when we see the severity of sin, when we look at chapter 3 for what it is and not try to make it palatable to our lost friends and we just call it like it is, now the gospel and the promise of God becomes more beautiful. The second you take away from sin, the second you try to make life always encouraging, which is just nonsense, you're taking away from Jesus. And yet not all is lost because what does God do? God, in a sense, answers the question, who will defeat my enemy that is wanting to destroy me? Who will deliver me and redeem me from a life of pain and struggle and tension and wearisome toil that ends in death? Who will bring me back into the very presence of God? And God says there's an offspring. And that offspring is going to come. And when he does come, the first thing he's going to do is he is going to wage war against the enemy. And he, even though he will die, it will not be final because he will crush the head of the enemy once and for all. And by doing that, defeat our enemy, redeem us out of a life of pain and slavery and tension from it, and will bring us back into the presence of God. And this is why we need Jesus. You know why you need Jesus? Because you have an enemy that wants to kill and destroy you. And you can't do anything about it. You know why you need Jesus? It's because your life, no matter how much you try to put it together, is filled with destruction and death. You know why you need Jesus? It's because there's no way back into the presence of God. Unless Jesus acts on your behalf life can only be found in christ apart from christ as a life of misery a life of destruction a life of death how do i know it because the bible is filled with stories filled with people who try to live apart from god and they always ended up with horrendous destruction and horrendous death and so this morning As we look at chapter 3 and now we see the consequences of our sins, may we see why we need Jesus. If you're a Christian, be reminded of why you need Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus and say, thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've delivered me, that you've defeated my enemy, that I am back in the presence of God. Even though I'm not fully experiencing it yet, I will one day, by faith as I trust in you. And if you have not 
trusted Christ and you're trying to fix your own life and you want me to give you 10 steps of how to fix it, I can only give you one step and his name is Jesus. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but in humility, turn from your ways and turn to him. Repent and trust him that what he's accomplished for you on the cross is more than enough and just receive it by faith. Let me pray, Lord. Can you help us to not harden our hearts? Can you help us in humility to turn from our sins and turn to you? Can you help us to trust you and what you've accomplished for, on the, for us on the cross by your death, burial, and resurrection? Can you help us, Lord, not to try to clean up this mess of a life, but just to call it like it is and say all of this is because of our sin. And the only way for it to be cleaned up is through you. Lord, can the beauties of who you are and what you've done become more apparent to us? Can you help us to fix our eyes on you? And Lord, for those who do not belong to you, you know who they are. Lord, can you call them? Can you reveal truth to them? Can you open up their eyes? Can you help them to turn from their sins and to turn to you and trust you? And Lord, forgive us for how we've taken your word and how we've taken the severity of sin and we've tried to clean it up and try to make it more palatable for people to hear and to see. And Lord, we've done a grave injustice because it takes away from your cross. So forgive us from that. Help us to see the beauty of the cross through the lenses of the reality and the severity of sin. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.